Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, your host, and as you know, every so often we sit down with authors of really important books and we talk to them about their books. And that is exactly what we're doing here this week with Rebecca Frankel, who is the author of a book called Into the Forest. I have uh, read it. It is not only a great and moving historical account of a Holocaust story and beyond, but it reads like the best novel you'll read all year. It is a really extraordinary piece of work, both as a piece of writing and as a piece of reporting. But I'm not surprised because Becky Frankel is one of the best journalists I know. We've had the pleasure of working together before in multiple capacities at Foreign Policy, where she was executive editor. She's the author of New York Times bestselling book, War Dogs, which I also recommend. Hi, Becky. Hi, David. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to do all my introductions from here on out. <laughs> well, this one is recorded, so you could just use it over and over again. I might do that. Thank you. But, but, it's, but it's true. Everything I've said is absolutely true, and anybody who picks up the book will know it. I remember the first time you talked to me about this book. It was in the middle of the Truman administration, I think. It was about that long ago, yeah. It was a while ago because you had just come across this story. Or actually, you'd you'd known this story for a long time. Maybe we can start with the origin story of the book. Well, so this is a a story about a family, uh, a Jewish family that uh, lived in a small town in Poland. And they were flourishing during the 1930s. Uh, Morris and Miriam Rabinowitz had two young daughters. And just as their lives were sort of getting off to a wonderful start uh, as a married couple and as a family, uh, World War II started. And so uh, that's what this story is about. And yes, I, I did know it uh, for a long time and, and really uh, most of my life, I would say, because the story is about Ruth Rabinowitz Lazowski, who uh, is the wife of the rabbi that I grew up having. And uh, my family went to a synagogue in Connecticut. The rabbi there was Philip Lazowski. And Philip Lazowski is married to Ruth Rabinowitz Lazowski. And their story is connected from the time they were children. And that's how I came to know the Rabinowitz family story. And I've been thinking about writing a book about them because they're extraordinary people. and. They have extraordinary stories for a very long time. When we first talked about this, back when we and everybody else were still in black and white, roughly, it sounded to me like a love story. And there is a love story in this book. But the striking thing about the book is its scope. And it's also a kind of a remarkable look at the Jewish community in pre-war Poland, how they adjusted to the reality of the war. And then a second section, which is really all about survival during the context of the Holocaust. And then there is what happens after 
Were you surprised that it evolved beyond your expectation? I always had this idea because, of course, I knew the family in only the after time, right? And so all of my discovery was what happened before. And certainly I understood the part about their survival. And this particular family escaped the ghetto liquidation uh, in their small town in Poland. And I also discovered the before, which is uh, really the beginnings of the story and the story of Morris and Miriam. And I would say there are actually two love stories in the book, really. And one of them belongs to Morris and Miriam. So, you know, really what it was is as it happens when you're a journalist, and I know you know this, that you don't always know. You might know what you, the story looks like from the beginning, but of course it changes. And the more you information you have, the more you understand and learn, the bigger the story becomes and, and hopefully the more rich it becomes in terms of detail and scope. And that's certainly what happened here. And it you know, was five years, <laughs> more than five years of, of research and reporting and, and interviews. And um, it just grew from there, really. There are many things that people will take away from the book. One of them is this human story. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But I think one that resonates with me or resonated with me while I was reading it is a message that I think we all need to keep in mind all the time, but especially now. And that is that very often in the course of history, the unthinkable happens. And the book depicts well the kind of recognition on the part of the people of this village that their lives were changing and also depicts the denial and the struggle with coming to grips with just how dramatically they were changing. Do you see a broader resonance as a consequence of what you've studied in this? Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say that a, a lot of the research and reporting I did happened as the, the onset of the pandemic and then the early months of the pandemic and then the first year of the pandemic when things were so uncertain and the boundaries and safeties were always changing. You know, and I did did see a lot of parallels, certainly in terms of fear, just how people react to things that they're afraid of. Certainly in how people, communities either come together, or they become more divided. And that, that was a hard thing to sort of reconcile. But certainly, you know, in understanding the family story and, and what they endured at that time and what was so unthinkable to them, you know, in hindsight, in retrospect, when we look at the history of the Holocaust and we look at what happened to these Jewish communities and there were warnings from refugees coming in from the other side of Poland that were first invaded by the Germans and were under their occupation for two years before the eastern side of Poland was occupied by the Soviets. And so people were coming with, you know, firsthand accounts of being people being rounded up, people being slaughtered. And it just, the other Jewish communities, even though they were close enough to it, and even though they had firsthand accounts, they just couldn't imagine it. They just couldn't imagine that it was possible and they didn't believe it. And of course, there were some Jews and a lot of them happened to be younger and who heard their stories and who escaped their communities before the Nazis did come. But they were very few and far between. And uh, people were very reluctant to give up their homes and to give up, split up, divide up their families. And they had to adapt in short order to the reality as it, as it finally descended upon their towns and as these ghettos were established. And I think that what we see when we look at parallels, and of course, 
there are a lot of people making comparisons to the Holocaust now. And I think a lot of them are being used ignorantly. They're making connections to the Holocaust that we really shouldn't be making. When we talk about things like vaccination cards being a comparison to the treatment of the Jews during the Holocaust, those are not good parallels to draw. They're, they're not really rooted in anything, uh, any historical accuracy as far as I'm concerned. But I do think when we talk about resonance of that time happening now, we see things like misinformation. We see things like, you know, you've talked about this before, the amount of things that we tolerate as a community and those kinds of things, I I think, are resonant of what was happening then, especially in Poland in the 1930s before the war started. All of it flowed from the collapse of democracy in Germany. Absolutely, it did. There were certainly a lot of radical people doing uh, violent things. And, you know, the government, at least in Poland, was taking action, but it it wasn't enough action. And it wasn't, they didn't come together and really uh, build a firm enough wall against these things that were happening. And then the government and their government collapsed and and Germany came in. And it was just a matter of, of weeks, really, when Germany invaded Poland in 1939. It happened very fast. And the demise of this community also happened very fast. I think, and, and you know, I, I, I'm reluctant to quote statistics to the author, but I seem to recall that something like there were 4,500 Jews in the community and, and almost immediately 4,000 of them were killed or transported away. Is that correct? It, it happened very fast. You know, this, this town was interesting because it was a, a, a fairly progressive community which I think was different. There was a huge Jewish population in this community. And for the most part, the relationship with the non-Jewish part of this community was very, very good. And so when the Nazi occupation happened, it didn't happen exactly right away. But from the time the ghetto was established in this town, it was called Zetel in Yiddish and Jainchel in Polish. You know, that was February of 1942. In April of 1942, there was the first selection and massacre that happened and 1,200 Jews were killed. And then by August, the liquidation, the first, I think it was August 6th through August 8th, another 3,000 Jews were massacred and, and killed. And of the entire population, which was increased a bit by the refugees who had fled from the other side of Poland and other towns were the populations were brought in and interned in the ghetto that they had there. Only about 800 Jews were able to escape to the forest like the Rabinowitz family in the book did. And it was, was brutal conditions. You know, it wasn't uh, the same as being taken away to a concentration camp, but uh, surviving in the woods was no easy feat. For me, it evokes so many things. And, and one of them, which you and I've talked about before, is, you know, that my father escaped the Holocaust in 1939, came to the U.S. He was fortunate. 36 members of his family did not. Many of them lived in the part of Poland that you're talking about. And my father, uh, after the war, went to concentration camps looking for his relatives, didn't find any alive. But many, many years later, he went to Poland and he went to this town where his father was from which I think was called Grozisku or something like this. And he went, he went to the town and he said, I'd like to see where the Jewish part of town was. And the first reaction of everybody in the town was, oh, there was no Jewish part of this town. You're mistaken. And finally, 
you know, he, he pushed and, and offered some pictures up and they said, Oh, Oh, them. Uh, yeah. And they, you know, they said, Oh, Oh yeah, we remember. And they said, you mean, and they made up some names of people and they were all just sort of parody Jewish names that they, they were, they weren't real. The memory had been repressed. And then finally he went walking, looking for it and found a part of the forest where the Jewish cemetery had been, and it was all knocked over and there were bullet holes in all the gravestones and a massacre had occurred and they were in complete denial. What did you learn about the social conditions that enable a broader society to accept this kind of genocidal brutality? It's a very hard very hard thing to understand how this could happen in a community where there were especially fairly friendly relationships where the anti-Semitism was sort of brought in from outside of town. And it's not to say that there wasn't any, but it was certainly much rarer in this particular town. And I think what happens is you create a culture of fear and you create a culture of otherness. And even this happens among, you know, inside the Jewish communities. This is what happened in the ghetto. The Nazis created a hierarchy of, you know, people who had working certificates and were safe and and people who didn't. And there were people inside the ghetto who wanted to, to start a resistance and try and break out. And then there were people who were so afraid of the repercussions that they couldn't see the, the bigger picture that, you know, if they didn't get out, they were never going to get out. But in these broader communities where they allow this to happen, it, it is a very hard thing to understand. But I think it's something that happens slowly. And I think it happens over a long period of time. And I think you take freedoms away from a particular people, but you give freedoms to another group. And it creates divisions that weren't there before. There is this kind of social cancer that spreads, which you, you, you know, describe as identifying people as other and dehumanization and pitting one side against the other and blaming everything on one side versus the other. And after a while, it becomes very easy to justify any kind of behavior. And the proof of that is that this happens all the time. You know, one of the great lessons of the Holocaust is not that it was this horrific aberration, but that that it was it was just one of the genocides of the 20th century. And your humanization of that, I, I think, is really important. I, I, I think the other, among the other parts of the book that is especially as important is that of those 800 who you just talk about surviving, they then were called upon to live lives like they never imagined. This, you know, the book's called Into the Forest. They go into the forest. Maybe you can explain a little bit of why and what that life was like. You know, I'm always hesitant to use the word uh, fortunate or lucky in describing these circumstances because they're not particularly appropriate. But where in other cities across Poland, where there was, you know, where they were in urban areas, there was really nowhere to go. There were very few places to hide. But in these more rural adjacent small towns, there were these huge, massive and very, very dense forests. And the Soviet partisans had already been gathering in the woods for some time. 
And so all across this area of Poland and Belarusia, there were rumors spreading the hope of the partisans. Although the Soviet partisans didn't make uh, rescuing Jews a, a priority, but it was a place to go. It was a place to run to uh, if they could only get there. And so this is what this family did, the Rabinowitz family did. They were biding their time to try and escape into the woods. And there was a resistance growing in the ghetto that they were in. And that's what the big plan was. And unfortunately, the plan of this particular ghetto in Jettel, it never came to pass um, for very unfortunate and, and terrible reasons. But the family did make it to the woods. And there was nothing for them there but woods. And so whatever survival they came to have was really just by the sweat and tears. And, you know, they had to dig into the earth to create secure shelters. They were dealing with extremely harsh winter conditions. They were dealing with very little food. And of course, people were coming into the woods to, to hunt them down. They were coming to root out the partisan networks that, you know, over time became increasingly successful at thwarting the Nazis. But they were just as often looking for sort of a pit of pitiable pursuit. You know, I, I can't imagine why. But these small groups of civilians um, who were just hiding in the woods, living together as best they can. And, you know, I will say that it's worth mentioning that this family did have uh, help from Christian farmers and from neighbors. I mean, I think it speaks to some of the, the rarity of the, the friendships that they had built uh, in, in their previous lives, their pre-war lives in their town in Poland. But, you know, they were constantly on the move. People were getting typhus and sick and dying. They were dying of hypothermia or they were getting frostbite and then gangrene. It was pretty grim. And that was two years. I guess that's characteristic of times of crisis that we see the best of people, we see the worst of people. We also find that throughout all of that, there's a certain degree of the banality of day-to-day -day life that remains dominant. You learn to live under any circumstances. You learn to deal with things under any circumstances. You know, I, I think it would be helpful if you would provide an example or two in the contrast between how this period in the forest led to people doing anything they could to survive, even if it seemed very grim, and people doing things that were angelic, that were above and beyond and, and, and really represents the best of human spirit. And I have to say, you know, spending so much time researching this particular period and this particular experience that I was very much on the lookout for these glimmers of community, these glimmers of kindness and compassion, even under the worst situations. And, and possibly because I wanted to see it reflected in the present day situation that we were, you know, that we're in as a country right now. But people did unimaginable things in order to survive things that you know, will strike us as very cruel and unthinkable, but for them were necessary. And it really runs the gamut, you know, on the, the side of the most horrific, of course, was how they had to deal with unwanted pregnancies and then unwanted, unwanted births. To have children around was a, a liability, uh, to say the least. It was always risk of discovery. And then, of course, there wasn't nutrition or the uh, resources around to provide for a newborn. And a lot of these infants were left out in the cold. 
And then, of course, on the other side of things, where you see these uh, these lights of humanity or people doing uh, going above and beyond to help their neighbors or the people who are in the forest, uh, there was a man by the name of Herz Kaminsky, who, when orphaned children and women on their own couldn't find shelter protection within groups because of course in these groups if you're you know a big strapping man with a weapon then you're very valuable but if you're a a 10 year old kid who you know can't carry anything then then you're just another mouth to feed but this man named Kaminsky who was from the same town as the Rabinowitz family he took in every orphan and widow and at one point had more than 70 people in his camp and worked very hard to keep them safe and to keep them well fed and, and clothed. And, you know, his own wife and I, I think one of his sons was killed in the, in the course of the period of time that they were in the woods. And yet he still, you know, went out of his way to help other people. Um, and of course, in the Rabinowitz family, Morris Rabinowitz, who had been a lumber dealer before the war, had a, a very intimate uh, familiarity with the surrounding forests and knew his way around foraging for mushrooms and things like that. And people from their town wanted to be with them and and, in Morris's estimation that it was not safe for big groups to be together, that the smaller, quieter, more, you know, remote you were, the safer you were. And they just refused to leave him. And he begrudgingly, but but he did, he accepted responsibility for an entire group of people. And his family famously talks about how he said later in life uh, or after the, the woods and they, they were liberated, he said if he had known what it was like to go in, he never would have done it. But I think what you said is absolutely true. This is the situation. These were the circumstances and they were going to survive and the family was going to keep each other safe no matter what. So we've only got... Three minutes left. Um, and uh, that's just as well, because I don't want people to get too much of the book from you. I want them to go get the book into the forest from St. Martin's Press. Uh, but there is a kind of a happy ending. Can you give us that in a nutshell? Well, uh, as I mentioned before, the way I came to this story was because of the rabbi and his wife that I grew up with, which was the Rabinowitz's oldest daughter, Ruth. And during that first ghetto selection in Jadal in April of 1942, Miriam Rabinowitz was separated from her husband. She was just with her two small daughters and a boy approached her and he was all alone. He wasn't with his family. And he came up to Miriam Rabinowitz and he said, you know, will you please pretend that I'm your son? And without hesitating, she agreed to do this, even though it risked her own safety and that of her two daughters. And then they make it through this selection. They make it through alive. The young boy, Philip Wazowski, also makes it through because of her help. And they go their separate ways during the war. And then in 1953, of course, at a wedding in, in Brooklyn, New York, Philip Lazowski is meets a, a, a young woman. And they end up both being from Poland. And they start to talk. And he asks her just on a whim, you know do you know anybody from this part of town? And she says, Oh, I do. I know this woman. She once saved a boy from Belitsa and Belitsa is the town that he was from. And this is how Philip Lazowski reconnected with the Rabinowitz family. It's how he re-met uh, the oldest daughter, Ruth. And the second romance of this book continues on from there. And uh, that was a really wonderful part for me to write about having known Ruth and Rabbi since I was five years old. Well, if you 
you know, listen to that as I did and you get chills, then you understand what it is to read this book. It's it's a great book to read if you're interested in the Holocaust. It's a great book to read if your family went through this kind of experience. But it's also a really, really good book to read if you're a human being. And most of our listeners, about 85% of our listeners are, in fact, human beings. But if you are, you will come to understand even better a lot of the things that set us apart as a species, both good and bad. And I strongly recommend it. It's one of the really great books of the fall and of the year. So it's Into the Forest. It's by Rebecca Frankel. It's from St. Martin's Press. Uh, You can get it wherever you get your books. Is there an audible book? There is. And it's, it's wonderful. Natalie Pila reads it and she's, she's done a beautiful job. So there's a audio version of the book. And uh, as soon as we end this podcast in a moment, go, go order the book. Thank you very much, Becky. Thank you, David. Congratulations on a real monumental achievement. And for those of you who are interested in what else we've got going on, go to the dsrnetwork.com and you'll uh, see and hear what else we've got going on. If you like it, click on membership, become a member, help support what we're doing. Thanks, everybody, and uh, be safe out there. Uh, Bye-bye.